Uh, the question, to whom was it written? Well, clearly it was written to the church in Ephesus, as we can see it in the first verse. But was it only written to them is the next question that I have. Because, um, and if you look back in the manuscripts, many of the, the earliest manuscripts do not actually have the, uh, the, in the title, to the saints which are at Ephesus. Um, and, and so this, uh, it was suggested that it may have been a general letter written to the other churches as well. And, and we are familiar with the writing of the book of Revelation, which was just that. It was a letter that was written uh, and sent to all the different churches. Um, and the reason people suggest this, or it's thought that this may be the, the case with the book or the letter to the Ephesians, is that there's certain verses that um, don't seem to to make sense when viewed in the, in the light that Paul spent three years uh, in, with the Ephesians. In the book of Acts, chapter 19, we see that Paul spent many uh, years teaching, teaching in the synagogue, teaching uh, the, the early church there. Um, and in Acts chapter 20, as he had come back and visited the elders there, he says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul already, he establishes that he was there for three years with the people uh, in the city of Ephesus. And yet in certain of the verses, it seems like he's almost questioning um, if they've even heard these sort of things. And, and it would stand to reason that if he was there for three years, Paul knew exactly what he had taught them. And, and so the thought is that perhaps he was writing this as a, a letter to all of the churches in uh, Middle or Minor Asia. So it would have been to Laodicea, Colossia, um, and uh, uh, Philadelphia, and so on. So that's some of the thought as to who it was written to. And Ephesus being the uh, prime church, in a sense, as the largest church uh, the city of Ephesus was also one of the biggest cities at that time in uh, Asia Minor that uh, maybe this copy or so was preserved uh, the best. However, um, more so than to just the church of Ephesus or the believers of Ephesus, um, if we start to look at who it was written to, specifically in the text, it was written to and about the Gentile believers specifically. Um, we see that in verse two, uh, or chapter two, verse eleven, chapter three, verse one. It addresses the Gentiles, and uh, Paul was addressing the Gentiles as a group, and this is important. It was he was addressing the Gentiles as a group and not as individuals who happened to be Gentiles. You can see that again in chapter 2, verse 15, chapter 3, verse 6. He's addressing the Gentiles as a group of people. Um, and as we consider who he wrote it to, um, the fact that uh, this was written to the Gentiles and the fact that it was uh, written um, uh, as a circular letter, perhaps, uh, going around to many of the different churches... Um, why, we have to ask the question, why? What was the purpose behind it? Um, because in Ephesians, as unlike many of the other letters that were written to the churches, Paul does not address a particular issue uh, that was happening that was particular to that church. 
So in, uh, when he wrote the letter to the Galatians, he was specifically confronting the Judaizers who were trying to put on to the new believers uh, some of the Jewish practices, circumcision and so on. Uh, I believe it was in Colossians. Uh, if I memory serves me correctly, he was addressing the, um, the false doctrine that some were saying that Jesus was not the Son of God. But in Ephesians, there's none of those specific issues that he was dealing with. Um, so then, I want to consider for a moment what was happening that uh, he wrote this letter. A letter that was perhaps most likely being sent to all the different churches. And it was a letter that was very uh, specifically written to the Gentiles. So I just want to uh, briefly in our uh, minds now replay some of what we've talked about and what we know from the scriptures. Remembering that this was only 60 years or so um, after the death of Christ. And that event is when Jesus came, uh, introduced and put into place a new covenant. So the people had been introduced to a new covenant. Um, so let's just re- replay for a moment in our minds. And I, and I need you to, in a sense, uh, put yourself in these positions now. And, and um, as we recount this, try and imagine what you yourself, you are all Gentiles, and how would you feel, and what would you perhaps be struggling with um, in light of what we're going to just look at now, review. So let's look. We looked at the Passover and the events that it, that it looked back upon. Remember the covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai that followed the Exodus from Egypt. So the Passover. We just talked all about this and how the uh, Israelites were always looking back, looking back to that very um, specific moment in history when they were uh, delivered uh, from. Uh, the Egyptians. God at that time elected the people of Israel to be his people, his chosen nation. Uh, it says in uh, Exodus 19 verse 6, and ye shall become unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He delivered Israel from captivity and bondage to Egypt and made them his people. So this is what we've just been talking about. We've been looking at the different Psalms that, that celebrate this and remember this and, and, and bring out the character of God in the choosing and the protecting. But this, as we said, was a foreshadowing of what was to come. As we looked at Jesus at the Last Supper, and as we look through the New Testament, we see that Jesus was that Passover lamb. He fulfilled the Passover and made a new covenant for the people of God. And this is what the Passover was always meant to be doing. Looking back to this event, and that event specifically was foreshadowing the things, the greater things that were going to come. And so the Jewish people have always been steeped in remembering, remembering deliverance, remembering the electing, the choosing that God has put on them. He chose them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And they were always encouraged, teach your children about this. And always remember, 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 right? This was the most sacred feast to the people of Israel. And suddenly Jesus comes along and 
he partakes of this feast and in a most radical way, he changes the nature of the most sacred feast, one of the most pointed or, or prominent moments in the history of the nation of Israel, this young rabbi comes and he changes it. He says, I'm the fulfillment of this. And, and no longer are you to take this feast and uh, think of it in the old way, but you are now to think of it in the sense that this is my blood, which was uh, shed for you, This bread that you break is my body which has been broken for you and you need to do this in remembrance of me because this is the new covenant. The new covenant in Christ that was sealed by his death. And then the day after that, he goes and he dies on the cross and thereby seals this absolute paradigm shift in the history of the world. Everything, and I've said this several times, everything in the Old Testament pointed to that moment. And, and since that moment, everything looked back to that moment. So there we have happening in that, uh, that upper room in Jerusalem, the most important fact of history, the most important event in history. And it was a paradigm shift. And it wasn't just somebody coming in and saying to, uh, introducing in a sense a new belief, saying this is, uh, you know, the new belief and, and this is how it's going to be and so on and so forth. And it was like totally different from everything else that everybody had always thought of. And, and so, you know, thinking, wow, who is this young upstart who's trying to make a name for himself? He didn't say that. He came in and he said, this is the fulfillment. Everything that you've been doing up till now has been pointing to this. He hijacked, in a sense, the Jewish faith. And he completely changed it. And so instead of being called now in obedience, uh, to be obedient to the covenants of God, as the the Mosaic Covenant was pointing them to, uh, Exodus 19 verse 5 talks about them. As long as you are obedient to my, my commands and to my covenant, you will be my people. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not it anymore. As long as you now are in me, that is the new basis of the covenant. Everything that you've learned up till now has been dramatically changed that the new standard is in me. You have to be in me. It's not obedience anymore to the covenant, to that old way, but it's now the obedience to Christ. This didn't go well with the Jewish people. We know that it didn't go well with the Jewish people. We can see as Jesus was ministering to the Jews that oftentimes the Pharisees were always rubbed wrong by this. You know, and when he would uh, uh, speak of himself as the Messiah or, or point to himself as being the Son of God, oh, they exploded. They couldn't handle that. They wanted to kill him. And, and, and they put so much value in the fact that they were the sons of Abraham. Even as you look at uh, Stephen the martyr, as he was speaking to the people just before he was stoned, he was recounting the story from Abraham, the story of the people of Israel, all the way up until verse 39. And then he says, But you people rejected the prophets. And you killed the prophets. Your fathers killed the prophets. You have rejected the very one that you have come, or that you've been always looking for. 
Well, we know how it went with Stephen. How did they take to that message? Not well at all. They stoned him. And guess who was standing right there taking the coats? The one who now writes this book. Paul sitting there, standing there, taking the coats as the people were making themselves more uh, able to throw stones to beat the life out of Stephen because of this new and living way that he spoke of. Again, we see that in Galatians with the Judaizers. This message that uh, these people, these Gentiles, could come and be part of the family of God, the people of God, Oh, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. See, there was always a provision that people could enter into the covenant of, of the peop- with the people of Israel. They could become part of that. But that was through them converting to Judaism. Them converting to the way of the Israelites and, and uh, the following of the law and the observance of all of the things that they were supposed to observe. So they could convert into Judaism. But this is not what was happening here. The, the, the rules had been dramatically changed. And so, imagine yourselves now. Imagine yourselves, and imagine yourself on either side. Because I think we can probably imagine ourselves on either side. Imagine for years and years and lifetimes and generations, you have been going one direction, always one direction. This is the way, this is the way, this is the way. And all of a sudden, there's a dramatic change. And I'm not talking about just, you know, a change in in a slight difference. This is dramatic. How would you respond? I know how I would respond, and I suspect I know how many of you would respond. We would not be happy at all. We would not be okay with basically having to come face to face with the fact that maybe we think that we have been wrong all this time. It's not the truth. The Israelites were not wrong. But they certainly seem to take it that way. It's not that they were wrong, but they were looking forward to an event, but they didn't recognize the event. And so when it came, they didn't recognize it, and they still thought that it should be the old way, and it had been changed, and they were just slow to the game in a sense. And so here we have this group of people who are saying, blasphemy, how can you say these things? How many times was Paul run out of the city when he went into the synagogues and preached? How many times did Paul get beaten, oh, near to death? And he has a list of all the things that he's gone through, most of them at the hands of the Jews, who are not going to have any of this nonsense, in their opinion, that Jesus, this man from Nazareth, this Galilean, was the one who was the Messiah? So I, in, in one hand, I can, I can, in a sense, understand how, where they were coming from. But now, and this is the point of Ephesians, I believe, imagine that you have now been told of an opportunity. This incredible gift that you have been welcomed into. You have been drawn into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? I remember hearing a story, kind of trying to describe this, uh, of, of being an orphan. And there, in fact, there was an orphan uh, train from New York. So many orphans at this one time. And then they would uh, put them on a train. And they would take them out to the Midwest and so on, trying to get them to families that could support them. Now imagine if you were one of these young children, who uh, an orphan, and you were put on the train and, and you come to a stop, and this stop was uh, at, a, at a couple's house that had this monstrous house. 
And everything that you needed as a, as a young man or as a young woman would have been yours. And more than anything, you had love and acceptance as this couple welcomes you as their child. That doesn't do justice, maybe. But can you imagine what it would be like to always be perpetually on the outside? And suddenly you're welcomed in. Paul was writing to the Ephesians saying, you have now been welcomed in. The central message of Ephesians, I dare say, is peace and unity in Christ. See, because Paul was aware, having uh, also written to the Colossians, uh, and, and there's apparently a lot of similarities in, uh, between Colossians and Ephesians, uh, having just written to them and dealing with a lot of the issues that they had, um, Paul probably, I'm surmising here, that he also then wrote, not dictated by having to solve a problem, but this recognition, people need the hope. People need to be uh, uh, brought into this family and, and to feel part of the family. They need to know that we are one, we are united in Christ. We're also going to encounter, as we go through the book of Ephesians, uh, the topic of Christ, who he is, but so the importance of being in Christ. This is a term, in Christ or in him, that is written more times in Ephesians than in any other book, in any other of Paul's works. And then we're going to also look at the idea of the church, the universal church to which all true believers belong. And Paul in in Ephesians describes a church as a body, a temple, a commonwealth, a household, and a bride. So as we go now through the book of Ephesians, these are the maybe the backdrop, the context of the circumstances, perhaps, in Asia Minor at that time. The group of people who were fresh young believers constantly facing the uh, scorn or or the uh, torture perhaps even, the ridicule of those who were bent out of shape because this young upstart, this young rabbi had gone and totally messed things up. And he was blaspheming in their opinion. Paul now has to help these two groups become one. To become unified in Christ. So let's just look quickly at the first two verses then. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. So let's stop with that phrase there. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle was one who was commissioned by Christ to proclaim his message and establish the churches. So the apostles were very far or few and we have no more of them uh, in the current day. But the apostles at the time were specifically um, pro, um, commissioned by Christ to go out and to teach. To proclaim his message and to establish the church. Because the church at this point was 60 years old. The church at this point was in its infancy. And um, the other qualification for being an apostle was to be witness to the resurrected Jesus. So Paul, as he says in 1 Corinthians, as one born out of time, he saw the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, 
And so there is when he witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And it's there when he was given his commission to proclaim his message and to establish a church. And this was done by the will of God. So Paul is asserting his authority here as apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This was not Paul trying to uh, be a do-gooder and and smooth things over. He wasn't a mediator. He was commissioned by the Lord Jesus and and by the will of God. And we're going to see here that the will of God is is something that Ephesians often will point to. and, And we see this even as we were talking before, that God has a purpose, a plan. There's an overarching theme that we see God moving in time. And, and ultimately, it's always pointing back to him. And, and oftentimes, it's, it's dealing directly with how do we relate to him? How do we respond to him? How do, what is our, the vertical relationship between us? So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, God acting, God moving, God doing these things, specifically um, appointed Paul, And the address is to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So here the phrase, the saints, hagios, means the holy ones. Uh, But it's not a reference necessarily to their moral character, but rather to their standing in Christ. It says, to the saints. Uh, we, if we look at uh, 1 Corinthians, or to the letters of the Corinthians, he also addresses them as saints. And they definitely needed to be um, uh, morally corrected. They needed to repent. And so we see that the Holy One, this isn't just as we would call somebody a saint. Oh, you're such a saint. After they've done something really good. It has nothing really to do with that. It has everything to do with who are you, or where do you stand your position in Christ. So these are the holy ones. These are the ones who are uh, um, separated, sanctified by being in Christ. In Exodus chapter 19, verse uh, 6, it is, he says when he separates them that you will be a, a, a priest, a priesthood to me, the, the royal priest, and a holy nation. So again, Paul is making this link the, the, the Jews were considered holy. The Jews had this position of being uh, consecrated and set us apart for this, this holy commission. And, and here Paul, by calling them saints, is also putting them in that same connection, that they also were holy, even as the Israelites were. And again, if we look back at this idea of the, this theme running all through uh, Ephesians, that unity that we have in Jesus Christ, Paul is oftentimes going to, almost in a sense, blur those lines between Jew and Gentile. Not blur them so that we don't understand, but, but to mesh them together, this weaving together of this, this idea that we are one body because in Christ we are one body. As we heard this morning, there's no, there's no Jew or there's no Gentile. And so this is a weaving together here. These words are, I believe, very, very carefully selected. And it says, to the faithful in Jesus Christ. So here, speaking of the basis upon which we are in Christ Jesus. Um, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Here's the first, uh, uh, the first time we see that phrase, in Christ um, and this speaks of the basis, the standing, uh, the basis of our standing, which is faith in Christ. And it's that faith in Christ which saves. It's not lineage. It's not um, which tribe you come from. It's not observance of, of the, the Old Testament laws. It was our faith in Christ. 
Therein is the basis for which we call ourselves saints, in which Paul addresses them as saints. And then finally in verse 2, he says, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus. So this is, again, many of you uh, have heard it spoken many times of that this is the typical uh, introduction that Paul would have for the, uh, the, in the letters that he would write to the people, uh, to the different churches. It's interesting, though, that even in this, we see this weaving together uh, of the Jew and the, and the uh, Gentile. So this reflects the standard greeting in Greek and in Hebrew. So in, in, uh, uh, in the, for the Greek, grace, um, the intro or the, the, the greeting of grace to you, um, it was something that the, uh, would be very typical in, in Greek literature. And then we have peace or shalom uh, for the Hebrew. And again, it's, it's not a, a just one or the other. It's always this weaving together of the two, making unified the two, the Greek and the Jew, the Gentile and the Jew. And finally, and from our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, putting that and in the middle there, brings them to a place of equality. From God our Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ, putting them on the same level. Here he is saying that God and Jesus are the source of the grace and the peace that uh, he wishes upon them. And again, here we see the address, the address of, of Jesus as Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, they would have oftentimes referred to God as Lord. So in these first two verses, we already see Paul um, weaving together this understanding or, or this idea that the Gentile, whom he is addressing this letter to, is being grafted, being brought into the body, is becoming part of the chosen, the elected, and they are becoming part of the people of God. Very offensive to the, to the Jews. But how, imagining, and this is where I want to leave us with, imagine what that must have been like for the, the Gentiles who were always standing afar off, who were always considered uh, not one of us, to suddenly hear this sort of a greeting and we'll see all through the, the first three chapters, especially, that Paul is identifying them and, and talking about how they're all being brought together. So as we uh, conclude this, let's consider um, the heart of God in this. The heart of God is unity in Jesus Christ. The heart of God is unity in Jesus Christ for the, the people that would read this in Ephesus, in Laodicea, in Colossae, for all the churches. He wanted them to be unified. He wanted them to be unified, not because of heritage, not because of careers, not because of shared interests, but because of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that as we go through this and we see God's heart through this, that we ourselves would also recognize that we as a people, maybe all Gentile at, the, at this point, but we still need to hear this message of unity in Jesus Christ. Because Satan is not just stopping by trying to divide on nationalistic lines. He's dividing in every way that he can. 
And this message of unity in Jesus Christ. And that's the, that's the real focus that we have to have. Because there's going to be so many things that divide us. There's going to be so many things that, it, that Satan wants to put up before us and say, Ah, you can't be part of this group because you're not together on your stance of this or that. And in Philippians chapter 2, it begins out by speaking, you know, if, if there be any consolation in Christ, any, and I can't remember the other two, uh, but basically our unity is not in the things external, but in the things of Christ. So as we, by God's grace, continue on in the book of Ephesians, may we also uh, begin to ask ourselves that question maybe of are we unified? What is it that we allow to come before us or between us? And perhaps put all of those things aside as we consider that in Christ we have been called to be one. Amen.